Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's podcast, I interview Dr. Samuel Buckner. He's a PhD, an assistant professor of exercise science in the College of Education at the University of South Florida. Dr. Buckner is the director of the University of South Florida Muscle Laboratory. This sounds like my personal heaven. His research group primarily focuses on skeletal muscle adaptations to resistance exercise, specifically the USF Muscle Laboratory, uh, which is a mouthful, is interested in the influence that exercise-induced increases in muscle size have on exercise-induced increases in muscle strength. So basically, he looks at hypertrophy, how to grow muscles, and what does that mean for strength? This guy is really an amazing scientist. He's published over 100 papers in peer-reviewed journals. He's very well-respected. His lab right now is interested in the time course of skeletal muscle growth and how imaging techniques can be used to best detect the presence of this growth really fine scientist. I think you're going to get a lot of value and you're going to hear things that you have not heard before. My goal for you is to bridge the gap between medicine and fitness and really looking at muscle as the organ of longevity. If you like this podcast, it would mean so much to me to subscribe, rate, leave a comment. Again, this is for you and any support that you feel called to give the podcast is really, really valuable. I don't take your time lightly, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. I'm super grateful for the Apollo Wearable sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I am obsessed with the Apollo Wearable. Okay, so what is this? Well, it is a small device that you can either wear on your wrist or your ankle if you like to look like you are on house arrest. But anyway, I really, really think that this is an amazing wearable. It improves the way that your body manages stress. I actually use the social and open program and I put it up more than halfway. So on your iPhone, you'll see that there's a way to increase or decrease the intensity because it is vibratory. It's incredible. And the days that I don't wear it, I absolutely feel it. Apollo is safe. It's natural. Why should you use it? Because we're being bombarded by stimulation. And I swear, I think everybody's nervous system is totally wonky. But the Apollo wearable really helps you stay focused, right? So you don't even have to take anything. The vibration that it sends has been developed by neuroscientists and other physicians. It's silent and it sends these vibrations. It's really incredible. Go to apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion. That's apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion to get $40 off the Apollo wearable. It is unlike any other health wearable that I have seen and used. Really, really obsessed with this. I'm very grateful to Paleo Valley for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And let me tell you about Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley is an incredible company owned by incredible people. And not only are they amazing, but also their products. Okay, what do I love about Paleo Valley? No surprise, but I absolutely am obsessed with their beef sticks. Their beef sticks are 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. They are sourced from small domestic farms in the US. If you listen to my episode with Frank Mitlerner, you know how important it is to support our local farmers. 
This is critical. They use real organic spices and they ferment their sticks, which these fermented sticks are amazing, right? So the texture of beef sticks can be weird that, you know, like beef or turkey or even pork sticks can totally be weird. Their beef sticks are actually fermented and it creates a natural occurring probiotic. Great for gut health. And again, um, I'm very interested in gut health as you should be because it is the next frontier. And Paleo Valley will give my listeners 15% off Go to paleovalley.com and enter the code Dr. Lion, paleovalley.com, enter the code Dr. Lion. It is 15% off. It is rich in protein, vitamins, minerals. It's, you know, again, highly bioavailable and has omega-3 fatty acids. These products are amazing. Go to paleovalley.com, enter the code Dr. Lion for 15% off. Dr. Sam Buckner. I am so thrilled to have you on. You are an expert at skeletal muscle adaptation, and you are an assistant professor at USF, which is University of South Florida. And uh, we're going to talk all things muscle, muscle hypertrophy, you know, if if you're interested in that kind of a thing. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Um, and you know, you and I were talking offline, and typically the people that are really the best at what they do are actually in the trenches doing the work and oftentimes keep a lower profile, which is you. You definitely keep a low profile, but if uh, you know, it's interesting, you keep a low profile on social media, but you publish quite a bit. Yeah, I guess that's why I have to stay so low profile, is <laughs> we always have data collection. So uh in the lab a lot, yeah. For the listener, I would love for you to talk a little bit about what you're doing in your lab, what you're doing in your lab currently, and then we're going to dive into really how to grow bigger muscles. What does hypertrophy even mean? How do strength and hypertrophy intersect? And some of the areas in which you see a lot of discussion in social media and perhaps on a lot of the platforms that you feel maybe lacking, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's typically the people that know the most really see the holes in the conversation, holes in the data and the holes in the belief. And I, I, it would be such a privilege for you to bring that front and center to the listener. Yeah. So um, currently in the lab, we have a handful of studies going on. And I guess to give everybody a background, um, in, in the lab that I run, we're interested in studying skeletal muscle growth. And currently, we're pretty interested in how much resistance-trained individuals can grow over time. Uh, we just finished a one-year-long study um, in a, a large number of individuals, and we checked growth across an entire year. Um, and that should be published soon. And the findings are, are really intriguing. But in short, they didn't grow a whole lot, and in some cases, didn't grow at all. Um And they had a training age of seven to eight years, and that's led us to a lot of follow-up questions. So currently, um, we're doing a study with a higher and a lower volume of of resistance training and and looking at how that affects growth that we see over time. And we're also looking at how supervision versus not having supervision of your training affects the magnitude of growth. Um, I'm interested in the time course of growth. Um, how quickly do you see an increase in muscle size? And also, how quickly does that growth kind of plateau? And at which point are, are you just entering a maintenance phase where you're no longer growing, but you're essentially training to maintain what you've acquired? And inevitably, I think everybody who lifts weights 
at some point in their career, as depressing as it may be to hear, they enter this long maintenance phase because it doesn't make sense that humans could infinitely grow. Um, so I'm curious in, in, in trying to identify some of those things. Um, we also employ blood flow restriction in the lab. So we'll restrict blood flow during exercise, which is a little funky of a technique, but in short, it um, creates a more metabolic environment within the muscle, which what that means um, if you've ever trained and you get that burning sensation, I would kind of equate that with a, you know, you're producing metabolites in your muscle and it makes your muscle fatigue. Um, blood flow restriction is a technique that tries to kind of enhance that aspect of training um, and perhaps facilitate adaptation while lifting lighter weight. So we like to have people lift lightweight sometimes and see how it makes muscles grow. We'll have them lift heavyweight, see how it makes muscles grow, and we'll do comparisons amongst various types of interventions. So hopefully that gives you an idea of what we're interested in and what we do in my research lab. And our primary tool that I utilize is B-mode ultrasound. So I image muscle using B-mode ultrasound um, to measure the majority of the adaptations that we're trying to capture. That's amazing. In terms of muscle growth, mm -hmm. what is that? How does someone grow muscle? Is muscle growth uniform? Do certain muscles grow bigger than others? Break that down for me. Yeah, so um, skeletal muscle growth, I guess this is what I'm somewhat obsessed with. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, what is it? Um, I, I guess the most basic definition would be an increase in the size of the muscle. Um, however, if you're lifting weights in the gym, I would assume you're, you're trying to also get stronger. Um, and you would assume that that adaptation comes with perhaps some function as well. So an increase in, in muscle size or hypertrophy, as we call it, um, is, is meant to be an increase in the size of the fiber that make up the muscle. Um, but that fiber is composed of, of different things. And we have our contractile aspects of our skeletal muscle, um, which are in the literature called myofibular proteins. Um, myofibers uh, basically are the part of the skeletal muscle that produces force. So think about uh, a couple of proteins that kind of latch onto each other and pool and actually shorten your muscle. Um, and this is surrounded by sarcoplasm, which is kind of the support system for this contractile component. So when you increase the size of your muscle, the, t the intention typically, I would assume, is to increase that contractile element of the skeletal muscle through training. Now there is some debate and perhaps we'll get into that today around, you know, every time you train, are you increasing that contractile component? Are there some instances perhaps where instead of increasing the contractile component, you're maybe increasing fluid or the sarcoplasmic component, which would mean your muscles are bigger, but they're not necessarily stronger. Um, and I do have some, some thoughts on that. But from a training intervention perspective, um, I think we've really uh, moved the understanding forward over the past several years. Um, and I think most individuals who study this would agree that to induce skeletal muscle growth, um, you need a sufficient volume of training. Um, and we can get into specifics of what that might be if, if you want. Um, but from my perspective, when we bring individuals into our lab, we know we need to do around three or four sets of exercise to or near failure to maximize the stimulus within the fibers to tell them to grow. So you lift weight, right? And you have a mechanical component, you have the weight itself. 
Um, and if you pick up a heavy weight, we say you have a, a large mechanical component because the weight is heavy. So you pick up a heavy weight and let's pre just pretend we're doing a bicep curl. With that heavy weight, you can do 10 reps. If you do close to 10 reps, you've activated the majority of the fibers involved in that movement and you've told those, those fibers to grow, right? You activate a protein, which activates other proteins, right? And then your fibers get bigger. Now you could also, from what we've learned, you could pick up a lighter weight. Instead of picking up this heavy weight, you can pick up a lighter weight. But now we've reduced the mechanical component. The weight is lighter. So with this lighter weight, instead of doing 10 reps, you find you can do 25 repetitions. And then you can't do any more. So you can lift that lighter weight. And what we found is as long as you're lifting that lighter weight also to or near failure, it seems to produce the same skeletal muscle growth as lifting the heavy weight. Right? So you can lift heavy weights to failure, lighter weights to failure. They both appear to produce comparable growth. Um, and that's confirmed in several studies. And, and why this works, um, I, I think some people would probably care to understand it a little deeper. Um, when you don't have the mechanical component, and I think anybody who's done reps with a, or, or sets with a lot of repetitions has experienced that burn, which again, I do um, kind of associate with metabolites. So one of the things you'll often hear is that muscle growth um, mechanistically is attributed to mechanical and metabolic stimuli. Now, if you have a, a great mechanical stimuli, you don't need a lot of metabolite. But if you have lighter weight, right, you don't have to activate all the muscle to lift up that weight. But what we find is that across time, right, you fatigue the muscle and you have to activate other aspects of that muscle to keep lifting it. So by the time you reach failure, you've actually activated a similar amount of the muscle fibers and stimulated that, um, that protein signaling cascade to tell them to grow. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Um, but what we found is, is lightweights and heavyweights, both to failure, produce similar growth. And then I guess if we were to peel layers back and go a little bit deeper, you know, there's discussions around other manipulations of training, right? Do we need to care more about just more than the load? Do we need to care about the rest periods? Do we need to care about um, the speed of movement? And some people are getting that um, intricate into the details of their training. And for the most part, if sets are performed to failure with sufficient volume, I don't believe any of those things matter. And I think the evidence would suggest that lightweight, heavyweight, moderate weights to or near failure produce similar growth um, over time. You know, you're speaking a lot about growth as the endpoint, right? Because that is important, especially as we will move on to the conversation as aging, right? Well, you know, how much can you actually grow? And then there comes a point in time in where you're probably not growing. You're really looking to maintain mm -hmm. the muscle that you have and the health and, and viability of that tissue. I find it very interesting when you're talking about the concept of there's the heavy, heavier loads and then there's the lighter loads and then the adaptations. The adaptations from what I'm understanding you say is that they are similar, if not identical, as it relates to hypertrophy. My next question is, are there other adaptations that you are either missing or gaining with the heavy load versus the lighter load? 
maybe above and beyond hypertrophy? Yeah. So if if you um, are solely interested in hypertrophy, right, then picking one over the other isn't um, a huge decision, I, I suppose. If you're interested in getting stronger, however, um, it's been demonstrated several times that it's necessary to lift heavy if you want to get good at lifting heavy. Um, so strength is, in, in many cases, now kind of looked at as a skill. And if you don't practice that skill, um, you're not going to acquire the adaptations that come along with lifting heavy. Now, it seems like it's more important the more complex the movement gets. Uh, for example, um, with my research group today, we read a paper that did bicep curls, and they found no difference between lifting 30% of 1RM, which is a weight you could probably lift about 30 reps, and a group that lifted 70% of 1RM, which is a weight you can lift about 10 repetitions. Um, but if we were looking like at a bench press exercise or a squat exercise, um, arguably more complex skills, then it's going to be more important to lift heavier if you want to see maximum strength in those movements increase. Um, so yes, it's certainly true that with lower loads, when you look at the muscle growth aspect, um, it's quite similar. But then when you look at strength adaptations, if you're solely relying on low load training, um, you might be missing out on the strength adaptation that would accompany um, a more traditional training style. So I, I think that's certainly a consideration. Um, there's also discussion around endurance type adaptations. Um, and there's been some suggestion. Uh, my colleague Matthew Jesse um, wrote a paper suggesting that changes in strength um, might moderate changes in, in local muscular endurance, which might be another desired adaptation. Um, and, and I think getting stronger would also be important for endurance adaptations in some respects. Um, but there's certainly many different tests that we can employ that, that give us different insight. And in terms of strength, how important do you think strength is for overall health, longevity, aging? Yeah, um, I, I think strength is an important biomarker, right? And, and I think we have um, a good bit of research indicating that strength is associated with several health-related biomarkers uh, with mortality. Um, and I think we've spoken before, but in a lot of these studies, they will find an association between strength and mortality. And that association will be driven by grip strength. Um, so then the question becomes, okay, what does grip strength tell us, right? Is that is that telling us go lift weights because your grip strength is going to increase and you're going to live longer? Um, so I guess it depends on the paper that we're zooming in on and trying to to, to pick apart. But the one I'm most familiar with is the, is the grip strength literature. And I believe that reflects, um, you know, the, the number one predictor of grip strength is birth weight. Um, so I think in a lot of cases, um, you know, when the child is in the womb, I think it might reflect aspects of 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 what the mother um, maybe activity and diet and those sorts of things. Um, and then I think during puberty and and development, I think there's an opportune time to engage in physical activity, which I think has long lasting effects um, on the biomarker of strength. Um, because if you are stronger, independent of working out, I think that might be beneficial for various health outcomes. So I think there's an inherent benefit to being strong, independent of physical activity, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, it's better to be strong. And then 
lifting will also, of course, make you stronger. So perhaps the best of both worlds is to be strong and then get stronger. Um, but if I could have one or the other, I think I would pick being naturally strong because, mm. you know, there might be a point in my life where I'm not able to train in the way I want to. Um, and if I had more natural strength, then maintaining that is much easier than a person that has compensatory strength adaptations because the compensatory adaptation is different than a baseline characteristic, right? If I had a friend and before training, um, I can bench press 200 pounds and they can bench press 100 pounds and we both train and now I can bench press 210. I didn't get much stronger. I didn't respond. And they can now bench press 300. They're stronger than me, Mm. right? But I think I might have the better health outcomes because eventually when my activity declines, I can maintain my levels because they're not compensatory. They're natural. So I do think both are important. Um, But I guess I have a unique perspective that that I I do believe that um, activity while we're developing um, can can make an additional and perhaps more meaningful difference on on some of the some of that research. When you talk about natural strength, I just want to clarify: you're not talking about the strength that you're born with. You're talking about, if I'm understanding you correctly, the strength that you develop when you are young. Yeah, I, I think during development, and then you know, through adolescence and puberty. I think puberty might be this opportune time. Mm. Um, and I've, I've compared it when, when I've discussed this idea with my students. I said, think about set point theory um, with body fat. Um, and, and muscle tissue is, is, has less plasticity, right? We, we don't increase our, our number of, of muscle cells. There's not great data to indicate that we do. Um, so you have a certain amount of muscle. You can grow it and you can atrophy it, but it's, it's hard to become much different than what we are, right? So I think if our baseline is higher, and I think the only way to get your baseline higher is during puberty, during development. That was my next question. How can someone do that? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, for, for myself, for us, it's, it's, it's perhaps too late. We can't change our baselines. <laughs> Speak um, for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, perhaps we can. Perhaps with, um, you know, long-term training, maybe there are changes. And, and this is all theoretical, just to be clear. Um, of course. You know, it's, we wrote on this and called this the human baseline hypothesis, which was primarily focused around strength. But. Perhaps it applies to skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle growth as well. Um, but I think, you know, if I have children, I'm going to encourage them to be active because especially during their development, I, I think there's greater plasticity to the tissue, which might have long-term benefits for, um, for aging and for disease and those sorts of things. Have you thought much about what the actual input needs to be in terms of activity? Do the young kids, so I have two very young kids, do they need to actually be lifting heavy things, you know, relative to their weight? Do they need to be running? Do they need to be partaking in particular kinds of movements and activities, you think, to really set them up for a lifetime of natural strength? Um, so I'm not going to base this on a study I've read, but I, I, I would say that I'd be inclined to, to believe that a starting point for, for a lot is going to be just getting physical activity, right? Doing something, making sure that you're engaged in some sporting activities, um, getting recreational activity. Um, but yeah, if we were to take it a step further, um, I, I do think there's a point in where you can begin engaging in more resistance type activity, 
Um, and you know, I, I grew up doing gymnastics. So gymnastics uses your body weight as the stimulus, um, which I, I do th- believe makes, makes a difference in putting the muscle through that stress during those developmental years. Um, and I don't have data to support this, but I, I, I would be inclined to believe that that increases your baseline muscle characteristics. Um, this is antidote, but my older brother to this day, I know has a capability of being bigger and stronger than me. Um, he was a much better gymnast and started much younger. And um, I lift every How single old? day. He's one year old. How old? When did okay. he start? How old? Yeah. He was three years old when he started. Um, and I remember the first time he bench pressed, it was in seventh grade and he bench pressed 225 pounds. And that's something that took me long. 225 pounds? Yeah. So yeah, he was, that's amazing. he was really impressive. And, and, and currently, um, he, he doesn't train. Uh, he, when he retired from gymnastics, he, he kind of gave that up. But, um, in the back of my head, I know if he did, I, I believe his capabilities are greater than mine. So hmm. in terms of how much a muscle somebody can put on. So if we shift the conversation and then we look at the continuum, kind of that strength hypertrophy continuum, you know, in the literature or maybe not so much in the literature, but definitely on the in the online world, you're either training for strength or you're training for hypertrophy, but there's probably crossover between the two. Yeah. Um, and, and it's likely this somewhat of a continuum, I'm assuming. And you know, how much muscle can somebody actually put on? What is the frequency? To, should they think about it in terms of a pound per month, uh, two pounds per month? How would someone know that they are actually executing appropriately? And then is there a cap to how much natural muscle an individual can put on? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. And um, it's one I'm really fascinated by. And uh, I've had discussions over the past two days with just different individuals in different spaces uh, uh, about this the same idea. So um, I'm probably on the more conservative side, and, and I, I know people disagree with me. So I think that's important for listeners to know. Um, there is disagreement in this area, uh, both in the scientific community um, and in the industry as to what is possible. Um, we wrote a paper in 2016. It was uh, Muscle Growth to Infinity and Beyond. And uh, that was a title. I read it. That's an, that is a great paper, actually. <laughs> and uh, Brittany it. counts as the lead author. And in that paper, you know, she discusses the current literature. And we're certainly limited by the current studies we have, right? Um, but she did an analysis of the, of the current literature and ultimately concluded that the majority, of just with the data we have right now, the majority of growth seems to happen fairly quickly. Um, and Akasara. And when you say quickly, when you say quickly, do you mean if someone is untrained and they begin a training regiment, the within that first year they've put on the max amount of muscle? Do, I would say the majority of the muscle that they're going to acquire. Yes. Um, in some of the studies, I believe there's a six month study. After three months, they saw a plateau. And what that might mean is it might mean at that point muscle growth accumulates so slowly that we have a hard time measuring it at the six month time point. Uh, but I think it's certainly true. And, and, and I, you know, there's different ways we can piece this narrative together. Um, I think our expectations as individuals who go to the gym and lift 
exceed our physiological capabilities a lot of the time. And one of the things I tell my students, I, I think it's in my strength and conditioning course that I teach every year. I say, some things I teach y'all are going to be a bit depressing. And one of these is that I believe most of you in here, if you've been training for five years, are in a maintenance phase. And you'll be in that maintenance phase as long as your lifting career um, lasts. Now, And that doesn't matter if you are really focused on the increase of calories, which I, I think there might even be some argument in the space that how much more, how many more calories do you actually need for hypertrophy? Yeah. Um, I, I think so. My, my statement, I think, is true with some some caveats, right? Meaning, I tell, I, I tell someone, you've acquired most of your growth. Now, what I believe is that with maybe hyper-focused training, right? And maybe with your diet being more optimal, there's a little bit more to squeeze out. But I, I also believe that that's really hard to maintain, right? It's, it's, it, it might be, unless you're a career bodybuilder whose job is to lift, is it possible to train every muscle perfectly and have your diet perfect so that your muscle size is optimized? And, and I think that would be a difficult feat to actually accomplish with a career, with a life. And the reason I say that is when you look at resistance training studies in people who've been lifting, so they're resistant, they're already trained when they enroll in the study, typically they still grow, right? So that means that trained people do grow. Now, do they grow a lot? It's, it's more difficult to get growth out of trained people than it is untrained individuals. Um, and in some studies, they don't measure growth. But my current interpretation of that literature, my personal opinion is that those studies represent a snapshot of what hyper-focused training can induce in a trained person, but I don't think that's maintainable, right? And, and part of the reason I, I stumbled across this thinking is I've been in science now for longer than I like to admit. Um, let's <laughs> just great for 18. <laughs> let's say eight years. And um, I've been measuring my own biceps as, as part of research for, um, you know, for, for all of those years for a study here and there for a pilot, right? And my biceps have essentially been the same size despite training. And, and I know that's antidote, but I also have evidence um, that supports this. And this just maybe provides an illustration to help people understand. Now, I also know that I've signed up for studies and my biceps have grown, right? But that's with people counting every rep, making sure my rest is exactly where it needs to be. I, I would call it hyper-focused and I can't, it's, it, it would be literally impossible for me to do that to all of my muscle groups. Um, so in an attempt to answer your question, um, you know, if, if you look at a study in untrained people and a study in trained people, um, and I was looking at some papers before the podcast, you look at the size of their biceps, right? In an untrained cohort from, from one of the papers I was reading, the average size of the, the biceps was like 3.2 centimeters. So those listeners, you can pull out a tape measure, you can look at 3.2 centimeters. That's muscle thickness measured on an ultrasound. So we're looking down at the bicep and we're measuring the thickness of that muscle tissue. Now, if you look at a study, and that was between, it was mixed male and female, about half and half. Um, and I looked at training studies in resistance training individuals who've been training for, um, you know, at least six months, which that might be a limitation. And their muscle sizes 
on average, we're about 3.45 to 3.5 centimeters. It's not that incredibly different, right? So that means we can gain fractions of a centimeter. And it may not mean that's what humans are limited to, right? And I will say the way I think about muscle and the way I quantify it because of the nature of the research I do, I think of it in centimeters. So I think of a muscle belly and it's this thick and we're going to get thicker, right? So how much can it grow? And relative to what it is, it can get a little bit bigger. And to provide another, um, I guess, illustration, which is kind of neat. Uh, we've been measuring bodybuilders. We've having bodybuilders coming to the lab and we've been measuring their muscle. So the largest bodybuilder I've measured, um, he is about 300 pounds. He's a professional bodybuilder. He's easily top 10 in the world. Um, and his bicep size is 6.7 centimeters, right? So that would be three centimeters and, and, and a little bit more over um, the average population and even the trained population. And that's with anabolic drugs, right? I would mm -hmm. assume we, we didn't ask, but if you're a professional bodybuilder, you're, you're probably using that, that sort of enhancement. So um, I am curious, and we are doing work to try to give some expectations as to what you should expect to acquire with training. But I do believe that when you begin training, the majority of the growth you're going to experience happens in the first year. If your training is sensible, right? So if you're training to or near failure in your muscles groups, if you have adequate volume, if you have a reasonable frequency of training, um, I believe, and I believe the data would support me, that the majority of your muscle growth is, is acquired. From there on, right, I think certain individuals have a capacity to continue to grow. But at that point, it's a very slow process. It's, an, it's a very difficult process to even measure with the tools that we have. Hmm. So that um, uh, is making everyone think, man, why am I even working out, right? <laughs> um, what I'm curious about is why does it seem that to maintain muscle above baseline is is really difficult? You had mentioned that, you know, your biceps, you're at, uh, what, 3.2 centimeters, and then you would train, have every... Uh, sleep and and rep and all of those things dialed in, but that it would revert back as soon as that uh, very hyper-focused stimulus was taken away. Do you believe that there is a health perspective of maintaining a particular amount of muscle mass? Once you've inputted the stimulus, you're at somewhat of a, it sounds like a, a muscle uh, threshold, and uh, it seems as if if you push the limit, it will revert back very quickly to whatever your baseline would be. Um, well, first I'll say that um, it's easier to maintain muscle than it is to grow muscle, right? I, I think that's supported with evidence from training studies where maybe a certain volume is necessary to acquire and add tissue, but you can actually maintain that tissue with less volume. Um, and Agasara is, is the author's name. He published a series of papers in 2011 and 12 where they would train people and they would detrain them. And they looked at signaling proteins and they also looked at just the whole muscle level. Um, 
And in this particular study that I'm thinking of, they would train for six weeks and then not train for three weeks and train for six weeks and then not train for three weeks. So and how old were these? These uh... I believe these were um, probably 18 to 35. Young. Yeah. So they were younger. Yeah. When well, it's easier to maintain muscle. Um, and they compared that to just continuously training and, and not taking off these three-week bouts. And at the end of the study, muscle growth was similar between the conditions. And, and this is just one piece of evidence. There's other pieces of evidence that would suggest that maintaining adaptation um, for growth is, is, seems to be much easier than, than acquiring the tissue. And that taking time off, you're not necessarily going to lose what you've done. But if you take too much time off, eventually you'll have to. Because if there's no stress your body's not going to hold on to that muscle tissue. And I think from a survival perspective, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we adapt to the environment and stressors that are placed upon us. So if that stress is no longer there, we our, our physiology might see it beneficial to decrease the metabolic load, right? To, to perhaps um, increase our, our longevity. But um, there's another study by Bickle that had a large reduction in training volume. And I think it was one third and one sixth the volume. And it took a little bit more volume in older individuals to maintain the muscle tissue they had acquired across time. Younger individuals could get away with doing less and maintaining their adaptations. Um, so I, I suppose the good news is if we are entering a maintenance phase. Um, which is, sounds like almost everybody is unless they're pushing for some kind of adaptation, which they must be willing to maintain. Yeah that that can be accomplished with less than what it took to, to build that tissue. Now, can you build it with the lower uh, volume approach or the less frequent approach? I think you can. I think if, if you take that approach to building muscle, I just think it's going to take a long, long time, right? So you would still... Meaning, meaning if you took a lower rep approach to build muscle, it would take a longer time? Not lower rep, but if you only trained once a week, for example, which- Oh, lower probably, volume. Yeah, lower volume, lower frequency, which may not be a, a volume we'd say would be a maintenance volume. If you applied that as your stimulus, I, I believe you'd still grow over time, but I think that growth would be slow um, and it would take a long time to reach meaningful changes. Uh, but I do believe the data would suggest that to maintain does not take as much as it takes to build tissue. Um, and certainly strength is easier to maintain than muscle size. So studies have unintentionally demonstrated that just bringing people in to reassess their strength, maintain their strength. So it's practicing the strength test every three weeks, maintain strength adaptations. And in some of those studies, muscle size would go back down because they're just doing one single rep. That's not going to maintain muscle tissue. But, you know, stressing it with um, a certain amount of volume, I, I think is necessary. And, and I don't want people to take this information and say, oh, I only have to train once a week. I wouldn't go that far. I'm just saying it takes less to maintain than it, than it appears to take to, to gain muscle tissue. And we had a great discussion in class last night where I asked the students, I said, based on what y'all have read, you know, what, what, what do you think is necessary if you want to remain how you are and, and live a great life? And some of them said, I think once a week, um, each muscle group, not just one session, but training I, each muscle group once a week, even though I acquired this muscle tissue training twice a week. 
Um, and one other said every eight days. Um, so he was he was saying he thinks that you can get away with more than a week. And, and I love the discussion around it because you know we don't have the exact answer, but we do have data that would inform us that we have some flexibility there to, to allow ourselves in our lives um, if we need to take time away. And of course, people lift for more reasons than growth. They lift for the psychological benefit of being in the gym, contracting the muscle. They lift to, to lose weight. Um, they lift for metabolism. So in all those cases, don't use this information. This is just to maintain the adaptation that you acquired over time that's very specific. Um, but I do think it's interesting that it can be maintained with much less than what it took to acquire. Would it be safe to say that a recommendation you perhaps would make would be to focus on strength as you, you know, strength and hypertrophy if you are new to training to push whatever limits are possible to put on that tissue in the ear? Would you say three to four sets to near failure of each muscle group? Yeah. So um, if, if a person wants to maximize their muscle growth potential, um, I don't know that I would limit it to lifting heavy. So if, if you want to get big and strong, right, then probably- yeah, everybody lift- wants to get jacked and tan. <laughs> how, how, how can the listener get jacked and tan? Yeah. Um, well, the tan part, you're going to have to- <laughs> um, I, I haven't researched that one. But um, yeah, getting, getting jacked, I, I would say um, training three to four sets, two or near failure- And again, 70% of one REM is kind of the traditional gold standard, eight to 12 reps. It's like all reliable, right? Um, We have a good bit of confidence that this is going to make your muscles grow and it's also going to make you stronger. Now, I think there's some authors out there that would say, train each muscle group twice a week and do a heavy day and a lighter day. And, And they would make that recommendation based on the suggestion that you'd get preferential type one fiber growth with low loads. I don't know if I believe or am compelled by that data enough to say that I think that's important. But some people would say, have a lighter day where you're doing 20 reps to failure and have a day where you're doing 8 to 12 reps. Um, and and that's just in case the data eventually comes out to show that the muscle fibers grow differently. And for your listeners, if they don't know about muscle fiber type, we have type 2, which are larger and more powerful. And they're typically the ones that we think of growing when we lift and we have type one, which are more fatigue resistant um, and more engaged in aerobic type activities, but both types of fibers can grow. Um, Rob Morton is his name. He conducted a study in 2020 where he had people lift heavyweight and lightweight to failure. And when they did this, they looked at um, within the muscle fiber, one of our fuel sources is glycogen. So you use glycogen in a muscle and glycogen will be depleted if you activate a muscle fiber. And he looked at glycogen depletion between lifting heavy and lifting light in both type one and type two fibers and found that it was depleted similarly if you lifted heavy or light, which provided evidence that Mm. they're both activated, right? In a similar fashion and stress in a similar fashion with both types of training. Um, So I think you can pick the weight that you prefer. If you wanna get strong, pick heavy weight. From there, um, I think three to four sets to failure, I would say twice a week. Um, and if you're consistent with that, if you're capable of growing, I believe your muscles will grow. 
I love that. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this podcast. That is inside, like inside your body, insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Why is this important? Well, if you have been enjoying the podcast at all, this conversation with Dr. Samuel Buckner talks all about muscle health and what's important for hypertrophy. How does that relate to blood work? Well, the healthier you are, the lower your inflammation, the better your hormone status, the better your capacity to not only recover, but build muscle and perform. There is no way you are going to (laughs) know what those metrics are, what that data is, unless you track. So go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion to find out what your hormone status is, what your inflammation is like. And you know, what's so amazing about Inside Tracker and why I'm so grateful to them is it actually eliminates a middle person. And when I say a middle person, it allows you to actually take health into your own hands. So you can go to the insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion store. You'll get 20% off and you can get your own blood work done. Very critical, super important. It'll analyze your blood, your DNA. It'll put your information through fitness tracking data. Again, all this stuff is really important. And if you are putting in all the effort, learning and listening to podcasts such as this, then it really makes a lot of sense for you to get a full picture of your health and wellness. A very special thank you to another one of the sponsors of the show. And that is First Form. First form, you guys, I love you and I especially love you as it relates to muscle health. And here's why. My top three supplements for muscle health when it relates to recovery, ready for them? Creatine, dietary protein, well, that's like the obvious. Fish oil. Fish oil is actually important for muscle health. And I'll throw in one more. Vitamin D. Okay. And there is also another one there, but I'm just going to keep it simple here. So basically... First Form has these products. They are amazing. I've been working with them for a handful of years now, and I find them incredible. Go to firstform.com. That's P-H-O-R-M.com slash Dr. Lion. You will get free shipping. They have a money-back guarantee, which cannot be dismissed. They really stand behind their products. Again, looking for muscle health. And if you enjoyed this episode, you are thinking about creatine, fish oil, vitamin D, protein. These are standard supplements that I really believe everybody should be on, especially as we think about muscle health, aging, longevity. So go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion for free shipping and a money back guarantee. I have a question about glycogen in terms of um, glucose disposal. Do you think that, um, you know, from your perspective, when you think about hypertrophy, is there a way that it increases muscle storage capacity? And I, I'm going to reframe this in a in a very clear way for the listener. I often think about these models of obesity, right? So there's calories in, calories out, and then there's the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. There's a third model of obesity that I believe, um, and that is more of a muscle-centric model. Um, and when I think about that, I often think about... Uh, glycogen storage, muscle storage capacity, how much can we actually increase um, glycogen storage capacity? That, that's a great question. And, and I will be transparent that I haven't read deeply into this, this, this literature. Um, but I, I would say 
that it's probably going to depend on our capacity to grow, right? And it would also depend on if we're able to grow meaningfully enough um, to increase this enough to be a potent um, a, a potent stimulus to to affect this this biomarker outcome. Um, and I do believe that you know, especially in in, in pre diabetic. A lot of these interventions have been effective at delaying the onset of, of di- diabetes. Um, I know there's some literature um, in this area, and, and the interventions, and I, I'm sure you're better read on these than I am, um, are sparse. There's there's not as many interventions as, as I think a lot of people would like to see. There's a lot of cross-sectional data, again, looking right. at strength as a biomarker. Um, but the data that I'm aware of is 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 different interventions um, in pre-diabetic and showing a delay in the development of diabetes. Um, I I guess where I'm not as certain is the cardiovascular implications of the diabetes. I think those outcomes aren't affected as potently as we'd like to see them. So I I think basically this is an area of opportunity of research um, using various lifestyle interventions that include resistance exercise. Um, the longest intervention that I'm aware of, I believe, was 10 years, the look-ahead study, lifestyle intervention. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know that they included resistance exercise as one of the modes of training. They had aerobic training and they had diet. It was really rigorous. And it's it's been a while since I've read that study. Um, so I think they were able to delay the onset. However, they um, ran an analysis and ended up ending the study because the cardiovascular outcomes we're still similar between their groups, which I think suggested a need for additional research. Hmm. Um, so I wish I could answer your specific question on how much glycogen and, and how does that look like pre and post, let's just say the lifetime of training, because that's that's ultimately what we care about. And I don't know the answer. I would be curious um, to, to, to know, you know how much does our storage capacity change with training. Um, I, I simply am not armed with that data. Um, but if we did have that data, it would probably be limited to eight or 12 weeks, right? Which in most, the context of how we conduct research, I don't know that I'd be that intrigued by what eight or 12 weeks does. I know. I'm going to be intrigued over the course of a lifting career. Um, you know, we said we, we lift to acquire muscle. We know that, you know, Maybe it takes a year to realize your potential and, and to, to really manifest these these robust changes. At that point, um, has that meaningful change in your muscle tissue um, content? Uh, how has it affected your ability to store glycogen? I'm, I, and, I, and I feel like I have some numbers, but I'm not going to say them because I I don't want to offline. Yeah, offline. We'll chat offline about it. Uh, well, I really appreciate that, and I always uh, appreciate the the discussion uh, yeah. as it relates to how we can interface training with metabolic outcomes. You know, in the the challenge with diabetes and blood sugar regulation. You know, you mentioned that one of the tools that you use, which I find incredibly fascinating, is this bimodal ultrasound. And I am curious as as it relates to the sensitivity of looking at the quality of tissue. And I know that you're dealing with, uh, from what I presume is a younger population. So perhaps you're not seeing or looking at sarcopenic tissue. Is that true? Or you do have sarcopenic and obese tissue that um, you do look at? No, we're in, in my lab currently, we're 
looking at young, healthy tissue. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the question that I was going to ask you was on ultrasound, uh, and, uh, do you believe that there would be a, a way to look at, uh, perhaps the quality of the muscle tissue that is, uh, on its road towards pathology? Yeah. Um, that's a great question as well. Um, so we, there is a, a, a measurement on ultrasound that is utilized by some researchers called echo intensity, which is essentially the, the quality of an ultrasound image. And um, basically, you can download the images, and there's free software, and you pull up the muscle, and um, within the muscle, you'll see different colors, right? So if anyone's ever seen an ultrasound image of muscle, it kind of looks like a steak at the grocery store. Um, and a steak at the grocery store is obviously muscle tissue, but there's also fat tissue in there. Um, there's connective tissue, right? And you can, in ultrasound, these manifest in just different darkness of the image. So echo intensity is, 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 is simply a quantification of the pixels within the image um, of lightness or darkness. And we use this, or it's been used as a marker of muscle quality to indicate um, is a change in muscle size actually indicative, perhaps, of increased contractile elements and sarcoplasm, or is it fluid retention? Um, is it swelling and edema from muscle damage and these sorts of things? So this has been used as an indicator of quality. Now, the measurement has some controversy around it because it's really sensitive to like if you have a shaky hand and you're holding the ultrasound probe, you're actually going to change your echo intensity unintentionally and that might render all your measurements um, invalid, right? So when you have a level on your ultrasound problem, you hold it really steady, you actually don't get as, you don't get large changes in this measurement. Um, but I do believe in diseased populations that it's shown greater efficacy and, and probably more application. It's become more popular, however, to use it in Young Healthy as a way to try to say that this muscle growth was real growth or this muscle growth was not real growth, um, which is actually an area of discussion and debate currently, um, primarily as it it, it kind of relates to people trying to understand why sometimes muscles grow, but they don't get stronger, right? And that would, I guess, be another marker of quality. When you train, if your muscles get bigger, but you haven't gotten stronger, by definition, I think we would say your muscle quality has decreased. And how is that possible? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's how common is that? How 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 possible is that? Yeah, I mean, I've I read this in papers, and um, and I've also reviewed papers where I've, I've I've provided this feedback, and it's because we always intrinsically link these adaptations, right? If your muscles have gotten larger, then for that increase in size to be meaningful, you also had to get stronger, right? But we know that doesn't always happen because if you lift light weights, we already said, those light weights will make your muscles grow. And we believe that growth is very comparable between lifting light and lifting heavy. However, you're not going to get stronger. So again, by some definitions, you've decreased muscle quality. Is that a bad thing? If it were, then you'd have to say that growing your muscle in that circumstance was a bad thing right? Um, but I don't think that's the case. I think muscle quality um, is just a, a metric that we don't have a good handle on uh, in, in some of the ways that we measure it. Um, but perhaps better 
measurements of muscle quality, I mean, I think muscle function independent of muscle size is important as a biomarker, particularly as we age. And I think that with imaging techniques, there's been discussion around, um, you know, which measurement are we using and, and how, how much impact does this have on the interpretation of the study? So for example, I use BMO ultrasound to measure muscle growth adaptations. It's been suggested by some research groups that I can't ever know for certain if my muscles grew or if I just had swelling or edema. So maybe in my training studies, I'm not measuring growth. And it, the suggestion has been made, um, and it's 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 a good discussion. Um, I'm, I'm trying to recall the name. Um, but anyway, Cody Hahn and, and some of his, his colleagues um, have, have discussed the importance of, of the Mike Roberts. Mike Roberts and his, his lab group have, have put a lot of work, and it's, it's great work discussing the importance of measurement, right? So I measure muscle with ultrasound. Maybe I also need to take muscle biopsies and look at the fiber and look at fiber level changes. Because if the fiber hasn't grown, but the whole muscle's grown, maybe that's swelling, right? So there's been a lot of interesting discussion and debate, I suppose, around the importance of measurement, considering your measurement. Um, and I, I, I suppose to defend ultrasound, it's been um, compared to the gold standard, which would be CT and MRI, and, and typically produces similar changes in muscle size. You mentioned um, the functional parameters and the fun functional biomarkers. What would those be? Would you say that would be um, squat strength, deadlift strength, what are these uh, biomarkers that you're mentioning? And also, do you believe that grip strength is actually relevant? That's, um, I wrote a whole paper on this. It was called grip strength. What is it? And what do we do with it? <laughs> um, and yeah, grip strength, that data is, is confusing because the implication wouldn't go, because the best way to increase your grip strength would just be to go get a couple of hand grippers and do this all day. Right. Exactly. And I'd be hard pressed to believe that that's going to make me live longer. Eh, uh, maybe I take that back because um, there is data, oddly enough, um, some of the most potent resistance training protocols for decreasing blood pressure are just isometric hand grip protocols. So I don't know if you've read any of these, but there'll be people, yeah, all they do is- well, I'll have to they check it out. All they do is squeeze. And there's something special about isometric strength that seems to- have positive benefits for, for blood pressure. But aside from grip strength, a common biomarker you'll see is knee extensor strength. So they'll be typically sat on a machine called an isokinetic dynamometer, which is just a really sensitive strength measuring device. You strap the person in, you make sure you're just measuring the strength of their quadriceps muscles. You have them kick out, and that might be isometric or isokinetic. So in a lot of the, the cross-sectional research, you'll see associations between knee extensor strength and the biomarker of choice in that particular study. And sometimes you'll see that people in the upper quartile of strength um, have more favorable outcomes than people in the lower quartiles of strength. Mm. Um, and you'll see the same thing again with grip strength. And, and I said, I've already mentioned, I think my interpretation of the grip strength literature would be um, that it doesn't inform training. It, it just informs perhaps inherent differences between individuals, a biomarker such as knee extensor strength would probably be more informative of the importance 
of maintaining strength, particularly as you age. And I think that's where it does become important is as we age, maintaining our function, right? engaging the muscles, and, and maintaining our strength as long as we can, our baseline strength, I think that is. And so then the natural question is, well, if I lift when I'm younger and have higher strength, um, is that going to set me up for more successful aging? And to be honest, I'm not perfectly sure. Hmm. Um, like I said, I still think the more important thing is your baseline strength, but perhaps that compensatory strength, if you can ride that out a little bit longer, and if that has resulted in some injury prevention, right, because there seems to be an injury prevention aspect of lifting. And those two things together, I think, would lead to more successful aging or would tend to lead to more successful aging. And I, I would see this as a, a, a lifetime, right? During development, being active, um, engaging in physical activity, doing some resistance exercise, and then man- maintaining that um, as an adult. And But I, I also have to acknowledge that a discussion of health, to me, is a little bit different than a discussion of physique and strength, right? And I haven't completely decided what I think strength training for health looks like in comparison to strength training um, for more fitness-related reasons. But I I do think it would look a little bit different um, because there's, you know, I'm surrounded here in Tampa, Florida by bodybuilders and powerlifters. And I asked them all the time, I said, you know, we read this this study, increased strength means you're going to live longer than someone that's less strong than you. So I said, does that mean the powerlifting team here at the university is going to live the longest? Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, I don't think that's the case. And, and I say, yeah, I, I think that'd be the incorrect interpretation. You know, I, I think the correct interpretation is there's, there's probably a healthy balance of contractile activity um, that provides a health benefit. And most people who love to train, and I love to train, I think what I do exceeds what I need to do for a health benefit, right? So again, I'm not going to be on this podcast and say, this is the program I think. Um, that well, you could. could. I, I could, but I, I don't have enough data to make a statement on that. But I will say that I think it looks different than what I currently do. And as I age in life and, and begin thinking more about health and less about trying to be big and strong, which I, on some level I already have, um, I, I think I'll change my training a little bit. And um, I, I think I think that'd be, not to say that the way I train would decrease my lifespan, but I do believe I'll focus less on trying to maintain all of my hypertrophy um, because there's probably a point, a tipping point at which acquiring muscle tissue isn't beneficial um, for living longer, and, and perhaps it even becomes detrimental for living longer, according to some theories of aging. Hmm. I think that um, it's going to be very interesting to see, because uh, right now it seems as if there's a group of longevity experts that are very interested in this concept of protein restriction and less kind of hypertrophy training. But Uh, If you ask, I would say a geriatrician or an individual who is very interested in aging from a sarcopenic perspective, I would say 
from my professional opinion, the stronger you are, uh, the more you can focus on hypertrophy while you can. And again, this is just only uh, my perspective. Uh, it's it's so valuable because it seems, and again, I don't work with um, athletes in a lab. You know, I just have seen patients over a period of time, over their trajectory of aging, that when they get to uh, later on in life, it, it seems that that window of what they can do really closes. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's just a very interesting phenomenon and, and it um, makes me really think, how do you build up that body armor and maintain it for as long as you humanly can? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and I think the perspective of the person that is working with sarcopenic individuals, um, I, I think would be, yes, we, we need to maintain strength. And, and at that point, it's, it's admittedly difficult to, to increase a lot of these things. And, and a lot of the focus is yeah. probably slowing the decline, right? Absolutely uh, agree. So I, I, I do tend to think that if we're engaged in a healthy, active lifestyle, um, those activities and those patterns lead to um, a routine of, of health that as we age, we have the confidence to move. We have the confidence to, to not get injured um, and end up having su- successful and healthy aging. And, and I think we can't probably guarantee this in every single scenario and case, right? There's some people that we're probably athletes and, and we're active and, and are still experiencing some of these things. Mm. Um, but I, I do think that um, sedentariness, a lack of activity is a, is a scary thing as we age. Oh, and um, totally agree. when I see it happen, um, you know, usually the point where you get motivated to 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 be active is the point where it's much harder, right? Um, you know, and I've seen this in, in more in, than one instance where there's finally an interest in in resistance training, um, going on walks, um, just being more active in in general. And at some point, or in some circumstances, I think it's it's so difficult for the person that's never engaged in these things. And now they're experiencing sarcopenia and strength yeah. loss. And I think the barrier to, to um, beginning those activities becomes pretty difficult. I absolutely agree with you. I have a question regarding, um, people ask me this all the time, is there an optimal amount of muscle mass that someone could put on? For example, let me, let me ask this somewhat differently. If you take, you know, say I'm 5'1", 110 pounds, would there be a way to predict, and say I was totally untrained, would there be a way to predict the optimal amount of skeletal muscle mass for me? I know they use the appendicular skeletal mass index um, in in terms of uh, how it relates to sarcopenia. Do you think on the opposite end that there is a optimal target for an average (laughs) person? Yeah, um, I, I like that question. I think it's it's really thought provoking. Um, I will start by saying if if you take two um, whatever examples, one hundred and twenty pound individuals, and let's just say they're starting out, right, and, and they have this question: How big should I become through training um, for optimal life, for optimal aging, and all these sorts of things? Well, the first thing is you can't guarantee those 220 pound individuals the same response if they did the same exact program, right? So they both start training, they both start lifting weights. 
it's very possible that one responds and one doesn't. So, but maybe your question is more so, what if one does respond? Is it possible that they respond too much and need to turn it down a little bit to only grow X amount? I would never say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's a thought that I have um, Mm. because, you know, I... I wonder this sometimes about myself, and, and I'm not saying I have a lot of muscle, um, by no means. So, uh, but I, I do sometimes think, um, you know, which version of me will live the longest? Right? Is it the version of me that's training to maximize my muscle? Is it a version of me that's focusing on getting twelve thousand steps per day? Is it a version of me that's focusing more on my diet and minimizing stress in my life? Is it all of those combined in some, you know, careful balance? And I do tend to think, um, and we might disagree, and and that's okay. That's healthy. Um, I I do tend to think it's not the largest version of myself. I I would say maybe it's um, a moderately hypertrophied version of myself. Um, because by the way, Dr. Donald Lehman would agree with you. Okay. <laughs> he, he would absolutely agree with you. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I see a survival benefit to huge arms, right? Everyone, I mean, a lot of people like huge arms, right? Um, but I, these are just thoughts I have based on things I've read and, you know, our, our lab group once upon a time went down a rabbit hole, um, into a concept known as adaptation energy, which was developed by Hans Selye, and he was a stress researcher. So general adaptation syndrome is used as a mechanistic explanation for adaptation in the exercise science literature. Um, his theory has a lot of issues, um, but his thinking was quite interesting in that, you know, he said, you can live this abundant life full of experience and, and vigor and, and, um, it can be very exciting and adventurous and it'll be short, but it'll be amazing. Or you could live this careful life with no stress and you can live forever, right? Uh, not forever, but a longer. Um, and I'm not saying I think he's correct, but I think there's some correctness in his thinking in that I do believe there is a cost to adaptation, right? So I don't think adaptation comes without cost. Which means maybe there's a trade-off. If I wanted to be the largest version of myself, maybe that increases my quality of life. But maybe there is a cost of that adaptation. Um, And I think some theories of aging would support that. And maybe the question is, where's the balance? Where quality of life is optimized, Hmm. but the metabolic demand isn't such that it's, it's overworking your physiology and maybe would lead to the the most ideal aging scenario. And it would be impossible, I think, to to put a number. It's fun. It's fun to think about and um, ponder how we can optimize some of these things. But um, I I don't know that I – I have a a thought process, but I don't have an answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think hypertrophy is a good thing. I think some level is desirable. But I say all of this, and I must backtrack and say, even if I wanted to, I could never be 200 pounds of solid muscle, right? So, and 
I love having this discussion with my students. And I said, thank goodness there are natural limits on how much we can grow, right? Because if there weren't, imagine how some of us would walk around looking. I would look like a cartoon, right? Because I would train to, to be ridiculously large, um, at least in some muscle groups. And luckily, my own body protects me against that. So maybe it's a conversation that isn't as important as I might think it is just because my own body is going to prevent me from ultimately um, achieving two, 300 pounds of lean body mass. And I'm, I'm limited to you know, the, the centimeters of muscle thickness that I'm able to acquire over the years um, and then hold on to them as, as long as I try to or, or decide I, I think is relevant for me. I think these are all really valuable and important discussions. Um, I'm hoping you're okay on time. I have uh, just a few more questions if you're good for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Um, in terms of um, blood flow restriction, you've done a lot of work in this area. I think that there's a lot of validity and valuable ways in which can be it, it can be utilized. I'd love for you to just uh, uh, speak about it briefly. And uh, it's something that I've been really looking to incorporate into my practice and bring to um, patients that uh, perhaps are injured and can't lift as heavy. Uh, I used it, I tore my hamstring. I had 80% avulsion off my, of my hamstring at the ischial tube. Um, and I used a component of blood flow restriction to help with that. So would just love to hear you discuss that. Yeah. Um, so blood flow restriction, for, for people who have never heard about it, it probably sounds pretty odd, right? Um, and it hurts. Yeah. Um, especially when, when I learned about blood flow restriction, it was around the time that vasodilators were like the, the biggest supplement that everyone was into is the most expensive one at GNC for sure. Um, so people are taking supplements to increase blood flow to the muscle. And then you hear, wait a second, I'm supposed to put a device on that's going to limit blood flow to my muscle. Um, seemed counterintuitive at the moment. That's, I guess, 2012, 13 for me. Um, but it's a technique where you place a pneumatic cuff, so a pressurized cuff around the most proximal part, so the top of your arms or top of your legs. Um, and you inflate the cuff, or some people use straps, like elastic straps or bands, um, that they tighten around their arms or legs. And the intention of this band or cuff is to decrease arterial blood flow into the muscle. So you're decreasing the blood that's going into the muscle, but you're also limiting venous return. So you're largely occluding blood flow out of the muscle. And what this does is it facilitates metabolic accumulation more quickly, or at least that's how we believe it works. So if we go back to the example from the beginning of the podcast, lifting lightweight to failure will make a muscle grow the same as lifting heavyweight. But you just have to do more repetitions, right? But what if you don't want to do that much exercise volume? If you put this cuff on, right, we said you pick the lightweight, you can do it. Let's just pretend you can lift that dumbbell 50 times. Well, that's going to be very time consuming in the gym. And that might be an undesirable amount of volume, especially if someone's recovering from an injury. They 50 um, reps is too many. And mental focus, mental focus yeah. to stay in the game. Well, low load training in general. To, to, to get yourself there mentally is sometimes difficult. I agree. Um, so blood flow restriction, when you inflate this cuff and you start doing repetitions, you'll feel that burning sensation much more early, typically. Um, and that's because you're producing metabolic byproducts. Um, so you break down something called ATP, 
right? So your muscles can contract. And when you do that, you produce things that are undesirable for muscle contraction. So they build up within the muscle. And usually they're just going to leave through the venous system. However, with this cuff, you're, you're making them accumulate to a greater degree. So what ends up happening is your muscle fatigues more quickly. And now you can no longer do 50 reps. You're just going to be able to get 20 repetitions with this fairly light weight, right? So it reduces the amount of work necessary to reach failure. And perhaps in some circumstances makes an unrealistic training weight, perhaps a bit more realistic um, for an individual. Now, is it, it perhaps isn't necessary in most of these circumstances, but I think it can certainly be helpful. Um, and there's been studies that would just use inflation and deflation when, when people couldn't move at all, right? If they're recovering from a surgery, um, there's been studies where they would inflate and deflate cuffs, which would cause swelling. And there's some thinking, it's not proven, that just the swelling response is anabolic. You, you get um, a flux of amino acids into the muscle, which will stimulate muscle protein synthesis and tell your muscle to grow. Um, but in the instance that you kind of mentioned with, with low load training, I would say it's a more perhaps efficient way to train. It's a, a way to help fatigue and, and get that stimulus in the muscle where it's perhaps difficult to lift a heavy load and contract that musculature. And then personally, you know, I don't use it that often. I use it as a research tool. Um, but I always share, I, I've had a hard time historically fatiguing my triceps. So if I go in the gym, I'll do tricep extensions forever. Um, and for me, that muscle group is just a tricky one to train. So I'll use blood flow restriction and I can get my triceps fatigued and be fairly confident mm. that if my triceps can grow, that I stimulated that process um, in hopes that they're still growing. Um, and for me, that's I think that's the only muscle I, I use it on in, in my life. Um, and it's because I have a difficult time fatiguing that particular muscle. Now, about a year ago, we were interested in the question of can blood flow restriction make up for a like insufficient training stimulus? Or I, I guess a better way to put it is the calves are hard to grow for most people. They're like a tricky muscle group. And it's because, I believe it's because they're, they're pretty fatigue resistant because of where they're located and what their function is. So we tried to grow calf muscles using blood flow restriction because we said, well, this we know facilitates fatigue, makes it easier to fatigue a muscle. Perhaps um, it might help grow calves. So we did a study where we tried to grow calf musculature and we compared traditional training versus blood flow restriction training. Um, but long story short, we had no muscle growth in that particular study in either oh, condition. No. <laughs> um, so blood flow restriction is not magic, right? But it is a useful technique that certainly has a time and a place. And then, of course, there's always, you know, people are worried about the safety when they're employing blood flow restriction. Um, and as far as safety goes, um, you know, we always do a screening for personal or family history of, of blood clotting, varicose veins, things that mm -hmm. um, might be inherent of vascular issues. Um, but overall, the technique seems to be quite safe. And that they've looked at different clotting factors following various BFR protocols, and they don't see increased clotting factors in the blood. Um, so I do believe it's a, um, a fairly safe way to train. Um, and 
it's effective in some situations, particularly recovering from injury or in instances where people cannot lift heavy. It's quite beneficial. I love that. Um, I, I also found it very beneficial. And, and again, you also mentioned for maybe muscles that are more difficult to stimulate. Yeah. So I have one final question and then I'll let you off the hook. If you could fix one pet peeve misconception in the muscle arena, what would it be? Ooh. Okay. You I'll can have more than one. <laughs> so I guess it would be, um, and, and it'd probably be best to ask my students, what does Dr. Buckner get upset about? <laughs> um, it's when a paper gets published and it introduces a new fancy um, iteration to training. Hmm. And it's one study. And a few people with influence will tweet it or um, share it on Instagram, I suppose. And um, then it catches fire, right? And then and then everyone's talking about it. And then you know, I'll sit down with my lab group and I say, hey, this is um, a very important study apparently right now. Let's read it. And um, nine times out of 10, we disagree with the conclusions of the paper. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not that it's bad science or anything, but it's, you know, one study doesn't typically carry that much weight on its own to change a whole lot of things. And, um, you know, some examples just in the past two years have been like rest periods. And there was one study that showed that longer rest periods, which led to more volume of training, led to greater adaptation. So a lot of people started increasing their rest periods. And in my mind, shorter rest periods are more beneficial for hypertrophy because you want to take advantage of the metabolic byproducts. And a great example of that is blood flow restriction is a volume reducer because it capitalizes on the metabolic environment within the muscle. It makes it so you spend less time in the gym. Um, so it's, there's nothing I can really do about it other than continue to try to provide good inf information to individuals and help people that I interact with pump the brakes when something new and exciting comes out and we all want to jump on board. Um, and, and another one I saw recently, and, and to be fair, I haven't read the paper yet, but um, I think it was slow reps versus fast reps. And one of them perhaps was superior to the other, but you know what I always tell my students and the, the students I mentor in particular, when you hear of something new, first try to explain to me why that would be the case, right? So I say, when a student says, well, this is better because of this, I said, okay, well, let's think about it. If you train slower, what's going to happen? You're going to do less repetitions. Okay. Are you training to failure? Yeah. Okay. If you train faster, what's going to happen? I'm probably going to do more repetitions. You still reach that same endpoint of fatiguing and, and, and activating the majority of the fibers involved in the movement. Nine times out of 10, um, these, these studies, um, I, I guess they, they forget to equate sometimes for training to failure. And when you train to failure, it all is almost equalized. Every fancy iteration of training, when you train to or near failure, becomes of much less consequence. So, yeah, that's that's just one pet peeve I have of what paper comes out this month that's going to make the rounds. <laughs> yep. And, um, you know, none of it's that terrible or bad because it just motivates people to try different things in the gym. And ultimately, I think people use trial and error um, to find what they enjoy. And uh, 
you know, I, I think also, you know, with time, science is a, a great mechanism because science in, in many ways is, um, it's, it's self-correcting, right? Because, you know, once the paper comes out, but then it's replicated and maybe it's not the same finding. So over time, um, I think these things work themselves out. And I'll, I'll ask just one more. Um, volume in, in the resistance training literature, um, or it, I suppose in the industry, is kind of touted as the primary driver of growth. And maybe this is my greatest pet peeve. <laughs> um, so it leads to studies being designed where they equate for volume instead of effort. So if you equate for volume, it's quite arbitrary. Four sets to failure produces a, what I believe is a maximal muscle growth response, meaning I don't think there's anything better than that. I think you can fill the cup up, but you it's just going to overflow and you're doing more work for the sake of doing more work at a certain point. Um, and a great example of this, I'll, I'll go back because there's, there's contradicting evidence on rest periods, but there's been... Um, or if we go back to, I suppose, the rest period example, long rest, short rest, they all had, one of them increases your volume, right? One of them was going to decrease your volume. The bias would be do the one that allows you more volume because it's inherently better because of more volume, right? Um, and that bias exists across so many realms where if something leads to more volume, it must be inherently better. But I don't think that is necessarily true because volume is only helpful to a point after which you're just recovering your recovery so you can train again. So that'd be my other pet peeve. But those are only things that a silly scientist would bother themselves with. So. <laughs> um, Dr. Sam Buckner, I have the deepest respect for you. I'm really grateful for your time, your opinion, your input, your science. You are a truly... Uh, class act. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Uh, obviously PubMed. And what we're also going to do is I'm going to choose a, a few of my favorite papers that you've written and we're going to do summaries and I'll put them on my newsletter. If any of the listeners out there are not on my newsletter, shame on you because I include beautiful studies from world-class individuals uh, like Dr. Buckner on here. Where can people find you, my friend? Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, I, I guess I, I, I'm semi-active on Instagram, so it's at Samuel Buckner. I do post my research. Um, that's one of the more fun things for me. And other than that, I, I post um, my physical feats, which I, I do handstands. I, I was a former gymnast. You do? I, I, had no, I, I had no idea that you would do handstands. Yeah, they're, they're cool. um, <laughs> not just handstands, but I, 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 I do like handstand strength feats that I, I attempt, and they're mm. getting more pathetic over the years. Um, so I do that and then I, I enjoy craft beer. So I, I post a lot of that. So if you don't mind the other stuff along with the science, um, yeah, check it out. And then, um, I'm, I'm always available through email. If, if you have specific questions or inquiries about education related things, research or, or need access to an article, sometimes people just can't get access to science. Mm. Um, or if you have a question about an article, um, it's just slbuckner at usf.edu. So. You are so generous and thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only. 
and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from a podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.